This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. Well, if you spent any time downtown today, you may have noticed that it's gotten a little crowded. That is on account of all the politicians, policy walks, and news media that have stormed our gates for the annual Texas Tribune Festival. TribFest attracts national talent every year to opine on everything from school finance to criminal justice reform to the will we or won't we with the wall, and it has also become a reliable campaign stop. This year boasts a number of presidential candidates on the bill, including Beto O'Rourke, darling of the Texas Dems, and also the subject of this week's Austin Chronicle story by news editor Mike Clark Madison. Hi, Kim. Hi, Mike. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Sure. So, Mike, you recently spent some time with the Beto campaign. I did, yes. Um, I went, followed them at the debate in Houston, and then they had events over the weekend after that outside of Houston in support of a campaign for a special election for the Texas House, which is another interesting wrinkle that's going on right now. So, yes, got a lot of time with watching him uh, sweat. <laughs> yes, he did look very sweaty in the picture. But he does that, yes. yes. That's kind of on brand for him. It but, is, man yeah. of the people exactly. out on the street. So you were there, the timing was because of the, the Houston debate. The, the Houston debate, yes. And that turned out to be kind of an interesting pivot point for him. It did, exactly. That, you know, after the uh, tragedy in El Paso, he went back for a week and suspended his campaign. And of course, after he hit the road again, he had kind of rebranded, retooled himself, you know, he was taking the attack to Trump, had a new message, was getting a lot of traction nationally. But at the same time, he was also working to keep active or reactivate the network that he had built over the course of 2017 and 2018 when he was running for Texas Senate against Ted Cruz. And as he'll point out, he won more votes than any Democrat in the history of Texas. So... That's a fairly powerful network. And as everyone came to Houston, kind of the bubble over everybody's head in the media and on the, on the politician side is Texas is the big prize in 2020 that there's a real chance that the state is going to flip. People are going to actually campaign here fairly heavily, both in the primary and in the general election, which hasn't happened very often in recent cycles. And so people are interested in how that's going to play out and how that's going to affect all of the races that are happening down ballot, because it only takes nine, it's going to take nine more seats, including that one in Katy that we went and hung out with Beto for, with, um, to flip the Texas House. And if they flip the House and they control redistricting in 2021, and they get to have the final say on who the speaker is going to be in the 75th, 80, no, sorry, 87th legislative session, um, then that's going to be huge. That's a much bigger deal than, say, Beto running for Senate against John Cornyn. And so all of that's playing out right now. And it's playing out at the same time, of course, that there's another Texan on the ballot, Julian Castro, who will also be at TribFest this weekend and was also at the debate and kind of made the most news of the debate mm -hmm. when he went after Joe Biden. But it was... 
it was definitely interesting to see how this was all working in Texas with everybody just starting to pay attention to how important it was going to be for the next couple of months. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that down ballot. Right. Well, the Texas Democratic Party, definitely their most important goal here is to turn those nine seats over in the Texas House to flip to a Democratic majority. One of those seats is the one that Beto was in in Katy, which was just vacated by Representative John Zerwas, who was the chair of the House Appropriations Committee, a very important member of the Republican delegation, who has retired and left the House immediately. He's like way over this. <laughs> um, and the woman, the Dem in the race, there are six Republicans running in the special election, and the one Democrat, his name is Elizabeth Markowitz, who's a teacher, and she's got a lot of uh, support in the Fort Bend County area, Democratic Party. Lots of people know her, but you know she got Beto's infrastructure and him himself going out to knock on doors for her. And so she's looking like she's definitely going to make that runoff. The, of the other eight, a lot of those are in the Dallas and Houston area. Another rep, Dwayne Bohack, just announced today or yesterday that he is not going to run for re-election. He lost, he won his pat last election by 47 votes. So there's wow. a real strong chance that that seat's going to flip blue. And then there's Briscoe Kane, who is also going to be at TribFest. He's at a panel talking about millennials, but he's the guy who threatened better or work on Twitter, said, come get my AR. 15 is ready for you and got called out to mm -hmm. the FBI. Well, Beto also fundraised for his Democratic opponent in 2020 and raised $60,000, which is a lot of money at this stage in the race, a year out from the election for a candidate who probably didn't have any fundraising going on before that. And so now with things starting to crack more quickly for the Republican Party, People are starting to look at races like that and saying, hey, you know, who 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 else is vulnerable, either because they themselves have done something stupid or just because those districts are turning over? It's a wild time in Texas to be a Democrat, suddenly it looking is. around, it realizing is. we have we have a shot at this. Exactly. So nobody actually thinks Beto's going to win, right? I don't think so. I mean, yes, it's possible. It's, you know, his chances are greater than zero. It's a far-fetched strategy, but he has one, mm -hmm. and it is really based on him winning the Texas primary, but that's going to require him to stay viable in the race until the Texas primary, which means he's going to have to show well in Iowa and New Hampshire, at least. Early voting in Texas starts before the Nevada and South Carolina races, which are the other two of the four early states that we talk about before Super Tuesday, which is Texas and also California. Um but he's going to have to raise money. He's going to have to make sure he can get into the all of the debates going forward. The November debate he is in in Ohio. The the uh, I'm sorry, the October debate in Ohio he's in. The November debate, which has higher uh, thresholds for entry, he probably is going to make it in. But it's not a sure thing. Um, so he has to keep that going. And but that's every other candidate has to do that too. And there's a lot of talk right now that. Other candidates, including Castro, are just not going to be able to make it mm -hmm. that far. And that by the time anyone votes in Iowa, this is really just going to be a two-person race between Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. Yes, but, uh, you know, regardless of... I think we all assume that Beto eventually... He's not going to make it to, mm -hmm. to the end of the line. But that doesn't mean he's not running an impactful uh, campaign right now. In the process of doing all of that, especially if he is going to 
have the strength that he needs, which he could have, to make a huge dent in the Texas primary and then be the most important Democrat in Texas thereafter, then yes, it's going to make a big difference going forward in turning Texas blue, going to the down-ballot candidates like those House races, like the race for U.S. Senate that he is not in but will certainly have influence on the outcome, Um, and in the decisions that the Republicans in Texas make to either safeguard their control of state government or try to hold on to keep from losing congressional and legislative seats. So he's going to have a lot of influence. He has Mm -hmm. a lot of volunteers, um, a lot of friends in other elected officials and supporters throughout that he's been, you know, working with for years. And he's definitely going to be someone they call when the time comes. Mm -hmm. But there's also going to be a lot of other candidates running for president probably spending some money here and some time here and working with volunteers and party actors and supporters down here. But the most important endorsement in Texas for anybody in 2020 going forward is going to be Beto. Sure. He also brings a certain, I don't know, a degree of earthiness, I think, uh, to people are frankly exhausted with politics right now. And I think there's something uh, and, you know, there's a degree of political theater also sure, to what sure, Beto is doing, but it's but it's working for him, and I think his his willingness to expletive laden yes. drop truth bombs uh, about guns right. or the border or whatever is working for yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, after the Senate race, when it looked like the world was his oyster, and he took the opportunity to jump into the presidential race. He made a big splash. He was on the cover of Vanity Fair. It was kind of over the top, and and it sort of backfired on Yeah, not a great launch. And after a while, people just started to think that he was kind of feckless, and there wasn't really any substance to his campaign, and he would wash out eventually like all of these other people have now at the bottom of the ballot. But that hasn't happened in El Paso in, you know, as tragic as it was, it changed something in him that gave him some grit that he is able to use going forward to like, yeah, cut through the clutter Mm -hmm. of what we've been hearing in politics for so long. And people are responding to it. Well, if you are in a possession of a TribFest pass, you can hear Beto O'Rourke in conversation on Saturday. Uh, I think he's at 8.30 a.m. Yeah. Mike, you are in possession of a past at TribFest. Who are some of the other speakers that you are interested in? Well, even if you don't have a TribFest pass, most of these programs, particularly the ones like with Beto and Castro that are being conducted by NBC News and are at the Paramount, they're all being live streamed. Mm -hmm. So you can check out those for free. You can also for free check out the events that are at the what they call the Open Congress Festival, a street festival part of the Tribune. There are basically tents set up on Congress Avenue, but there's a lot of good programming there. There's going to be um, deep dive sessions on the future of Texas in education and health and transportation, immigration, uh, voting rights, what the 2020 census is going to mean, as as well as some kind of more red meat stuff. You know, will Donald Trump get reelected? How do we change American politics? I think Steve Bullock of Montana, who is running for president, is going to be on that panel. Um, so, it, but of course it's Austin, so there'll also be food trucks and kids areas and live music and things like that. But you should, you know, people will be hanging out that 
in anybody who has like a little bit of interest in politics is going to probably be down there on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And like you said, there's there's some live streaming options. Another one that people might want to check out is on Saturday evening. Uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is going to be delivering a keynote, conver- a closing keynote conversation. Uh, she might have a thing or two to talk about. Might have right a now. thing or two. She's got some going stuff. On right yeah, now. she's got some stuff on her agenda. And that's the interesting thing with events like this that you know they have to kind of turn on a dime when politics, when news turns, and. A lot of people who didn't think they were going to be talking about impeachment are going to be talking about impeachment. But there are a lot of people who have something to say about it, like Pelosi, like Ted Cruz, like um, some of the members of the uh, House Judiciary Committee that are going to be there. So it will be interesting. For sure. And it's, you know, the Texas Tribune is a nonpartisan media organization. So that's how you get Ted Cruz in the same exactly. room They'll as all Nancy be in Pelosi. The same room. And yes. Yeah. So. so every every prominent Democrat will be there. There's also a prominent Republican who will be there as well, including all the way up to presidential candidates. Uh, Joe Walsh and Bill Weld will be there if that's your flavor of Republican that you want this year. So, So many flavors to choose from. Uh, if you want to know more about the Texas Tribune Fest or read more about uh, Mike's time with the Beto O'Rourke campaign, you can check it out in this week's issue of the Austin Chronicle, which is on stands now. Mike, thanks for coming in. Well, thank you. I'm your host, Kim Jones, editor of the Austin Chronicle. But in addition to being the editor of the Austin Chronicle, I have also been writing film reviews for the paper for going on 20 years, which is why I am so excited about our next segment. September is Women Director Awareness Month, and in this week's issue, we have local women in film and television talking about some of their favorite movies directed by women. So we decided to continue that conversation here in the studio uh, with Chronicle. So we decided to continue that conversation here on air with Chronicle's Team Film. Joining me today is starting with Screen's editor Richard Whitaker. Richard. Good afternoon. If you've ever read an interview with a director, Richard is the guy who assigned the story and he edited it and there's a good chance he wrote it too. (laughs) Also joining us is special screenings editor Beth Sullivan. If you've ever used the Chronicles movie listings to find a midnight movie or a repertory art house film, then you have Beth to thank for it. I think people don't always know what we do at the Chronicle and I just wanted to peel back the curtain a little (laughs) bit and also assure people that, you know, you guys bring enthusiasm and expertise to, to the job. So specifically, we are going to talk about movies directed by women, uh, which is obviously a pretty wide canvas. So we decided to refine that search to, to genre, genres that really speak to us in particular. Richard, tell us about your picks. Um, well, as the horror guy in the room, uh, <laughs> in most circumstances, um, particularly this uh, this year because we're just coming out of Fantastic Fest and it was the return there of a uh, the first ever Laotian di- uh, woman director, Matty Doe. Um, and she's actually made two uh, horror films, uh, Dearest Sister and uh, Sean Farley, which is actually the first horror film from Laos. So she's a real trailblazer. And she's back this year with The Long Walk. And the idea that you're the first person to make a film in a genre in a country and also to be the first woman director in a country which has not had a great record of women participation in film is she's she's amazing she's mm-hmm. truly inspirational I, I, I endless time for her um and one of the others that that came to mind when we were talking about this because uh, somebody else with a, a kind of 
hidden career in genre. Everybody knows Catherine Bigelow for her Oscar win for The Hurt Locker, for the script for that, and then as, as director for it as well. But she started off in Down and Dirty Grindhouse. Um, <laughs> her debut film um, is a biker pick called the loveless and it's actually willem defoe's first major role and it really defined him as kind of this you know it reached in and found all his inherent creepiness and vileness and really established the willem defoe that we knew and loved for much <laughs> of the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. but she also made one of the greatest vampire movies ever near dark which if you've never seen it's a western vampire movie and it's Basically, half of the people who were involved in Aliens, and they went off with Catherine Bigelow, who was a producer on Aliens, and did this amazing, mesmerizing story of what it is to be really faced with the possibility you might live forever, but at great cost to yourself. And it's, it's weird and intimate and beautiful, and I love her work so much. And I hear rumor that after years of not being available on Blu-ray due to rights complications uh, relating to the soundtrack, it's finally coming out on Blu-ray late this, uh, late this year or early in 2020. Unmissable. It's just a defining horror work. Um, uh, I've also got to call out uh, uh, two at the same time, Jen and Sylvia Soska, who are Canadian horror directors. They are twins. Uh, they often play twins in their own films, but... Um, they did one of the great uh, body modification horrors, American Mary, which also played at Fantastic Fest, I think back in 2012, maybe 2011. Um, and they've come back to a lot of those themes of body horror this year because they've just done a remake of David Cronenberg's Rabid with Cronenberg's approval. Um, and that's coming out in the States very, very soon. Um, and then looking forward to next year, um, Lee Janiak. Uh, did I, I love a horror film that is driven by character and um, a f- couple of years ago she did an amazing film that played at South by Southwest called Honeymoon uh, which starts off as a couple just going on honeymoon and takes a wild swerve into genre and it has one of the best emotional endings to a horror film you will ever see there's no gore in it but it will break your heart and it's pure horror. It's astounding. But the great news is that, I mean, it's hard for anybody in genre to break out. And women directors in horror have always been kind of pigeonholed. But she's been given two of the three adaptations of R.L. Stein's Fear Street that are coming out hmm. next year. She's been given, and uh, rumor is that she's actually been given all three. They're handing the entire trilogy over to her. And that is amazing news. She's such a great voice. And again, it's all character-driven horror. So that gets us through the horror beat, I think. Beth, what uh, what what do you recommend? Well, when I first started thinking about my favorite films directed by women, a lot of the ones that I w- was coming up with were ones that might have been directed by a female director, but they weren't written by one. Um, and I'm kind of at a point in my life where I don't have a lot of patience, I think, for stories that are about women that aren't written by women. And so when I went back and looked at films that are both directed by women and written by women, the three that I came up with are Dee Reese's Pariah, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, and Kat Candler's Hellion. And those are all, I think, really interesting examples of women who are in the beginning of the middle of their career and have even greater things 
to go on to. You know, Dee Reese's Mudbound uh, drew Oscar attention. Uh, Greta Gerwig is, uh, you know, indie indie film darling who has a Little Women adaptation. Right. Uh, and Kat Candler, yeah. a local woman. Right. Sometime, one time local. I'm not sure. Um, but she is. Has, no. she, has she left us for... She, she sadly has departed. She, uh, I know she comes back yeah. as regularly as she possibly can. Mm-hmm. But uh, she did move to uh, uh, Georgia while she was showrunner on Queen Sugar for OWN. Uh, you know, she's, uh, she's yeah. a very much an in-demand talent now. So as for my selections, uh, I am a rom-com girl. Absolutely, if you dropped me on a desert island and said you only get one genre, I would point my finger at screwball comedy. Uh, So when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about uh, women filmmakers who were inspired by that genre or were in the mold of that. Um, Obviously, everybody knows Nora Ephron. Uh, She might be a little bit more on the sentimental side, but I think just her... Uh, her use of language, that ratatat and the rhythm, um, is really in that screwball vein. Obviously, when Harry met Sally, which she wrote but did not direct, um, is 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 the is at the the top of the heap. Um, but I'm also actually a big fan of You've Got Mail. But if you want to go a little bit weirder, uh, Eleven, Elaine May uh, has really had a rotten time of it in Hollywood. Pretty much every film she ever made was compromised in some way, or she was unhappy with the studio interference. Um, a movie like her 1971 film, A New Leaf, it just, it really embraced the the screwiness of Screwball. It's a really zany, uh, really dark comedy with Walter Matthau and with Elaine May, actually, uh, starring in it as this heiress who uh, Walter Matthau woos and marries uh, and plans to kill, uh, but those plans get subverted along the way. It's a really delightful, sometimes hard to see. I know AFS has has uh, shown it a few times, but I think it's out there on DVD somewhere. It's not the cut that she wanted. Uh, it was taken away from her, but what what we've got is, is pretty terrific. Uh, a couple more recent examples, Leslie Headland. Uh, she, people now know her because she's co-creator of Russian Doll, the Netflix show. Um, but before that, uh, she worked in film both as a director and as a writer, um, but her last film, was called Sleeping With Other People. Uh, it was barely seen. It got pretty meh reviews in general, which I never understood. Uh, it's Alison Brie and Jason Sudeikis playing sex addicts who uh, become friends. They meet, in, they meet in college. They reconnect at a, a sex addicts meeting. And because of their condition, they intentionally you know, keep their physical distance and vow not to date each other. And it's just, it's a really interesting... Uh, off-kilter romantic comedy uh, and one that I think deserves to be better seen. And then finally, um, Rebecca Miller, um, who is Arthur Miller's daughter and uh, is married to Daniel Day-Lewis, really interesting uh, independent filmmaker who's made a lot of uh, female-led stories, but often dramatic, um, sort of sensitive films. Her last picture was, it was called Maggie's Plan. Uh, starring Greta Gerwig, who we've already talked about. The ubiquitous. Um, 
the ubiquitous Greta Gerwig, <laughs> who honestly has such an out of time quality to her. She would have been perfect in screwball films, which I think is why I love her so much in this movie. She plays a woman who who has an affair uh, with Ethan Hawke's academic, and they end up together. And this is very early in the picture. And then eventually she decides that she wants to give him back to his wife, basically. And so the, in a pretty classic kind of screwball plot, uh, she she goes shenanigans in order to to get them back together uh, with Julianne Moore playing playing his ex-wife. Uh, really delightful stuff. So those are my rom-com picks. I, I think we should also point out to people that there are a lot of movies uh, right now in theaters or uh, coming that have come out this year uh, that were directed by women. Uh, do you guys have any that you wanna to, you wanna shout out? Probably a night twenty nineteen film directed by a woman that I really liked was Wanuri Kahus. I'm hope I'm saying her name correctly. Rafiki. It's about two young Kenyan girls who fall in love. It's actually banned in Kenya because being gay there is still illegal. And it's just a super lush, vibrant film that, I don't know, it's pretty romantic. Um, I gotta go with uh, Fast Color uh, by Julia Hart, which kind of snuck out earlier in the year. And I think everybody involved has admitted they kind of dropped the ball on it. But it's uh, Julia Hart directed it, and it is this wonderful story of three generations of superheroes. That's the only way to describe them, but it, it's not at any level a traditional superhero film. It is uh, you know, just a family that happens to have these strange powers that they don't quite understand, and it's passed from mother to daughter, and it's a family drama again. And uh, it's just been acquired by Amazon to be converted into a, uh, a full series, and uh, that is the best news I can imagine this year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, quickly, my pick would be for, it's a movie that came out a little bit earlier in the year by Nia DaCosta called Little Woods. It was shot around Austin, uh, but it's set at the Canadian border, uh, and it's Tessa Thompson stars in it, and a terrific performance. It's kind of a neo-Western. It's basically about a, a, a woman who's about to lose her house, and is desperate to to pay her mortgage and for ends to meet and she uh smuggles prescription drugs over the border it's it's pretty terrific so a lot for people to catch up with uh thank you guys so much for coming in oh thank our pleasure. you that is going to do it for our show this week Thanks again to my guests, Mike Clark-Madison, Beth Sullivan, and Richard Whitaker. Thanks also go to our engineer, Evan Hearn, and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.